my second time. <laughs> I am uh, a bit intimidated this morning. Uh, Caleb has said that the first sermon was really great. <laughs> and then uh, Dave has said it might be fun. I don't know if either one of those are going to be true. Uh, my personality is such, and, and I may not uh, speak enough that some of you know, but, but I enjoy sarcasm and cynicism and exaggeration. So you'll have to listen carefully to see when I'm doing that. Uh, one of my favorite sayings and, uh, is that I like to achieve success by lowering expectations. <laughs> and that has been completely destroyed this morning. So. The sermon may or may not be all that good this morning. That'll be yet to be determined, but I ask for grace. And uh, the sermon this morning uh, may sound a bit old school, but I ask you to give me a fair hearing, and it's hard not to preach old school when you're getting 60, what do they say? 62 and better. Yeah, 62 and better. Now, the two, uh, the pictures I have up on there, the first one of, is of Black Hills Bible Camp, which is in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And uh, I was just there for a week and just a wonderful, enjoyable time. And then uh, I didn't want to uh, neglect our camp, Flaming Pine Youth Camp, which is wonderful this summer. I think uh, camps, I've heard me, you've heard me say this before, uh, I think camps are one of the things we really do well. Uh, we, you know, whatever state you go to, they're just always so good. And there, there's sometimes some details that are tweaked and a little bit different, but they seem to kind of follow a similar pattern. So we must have all learned from someone who began them somewhere. I, I don't know. They are just a, a great place for youth and adults. And uh, they're a place, I learned this in Pennsylvania. It was the first time I realized that I didn't grow up going to camps. But they're a place uh, where Christians who have different opinions on the details of the Christian life put their opinions on the back burner for a week or a summer because it is all about the youth. It is all about the kids. And I just love that. And you can tell that some people's tongues are almost sore from biting them because there's stuff that happens that just are not, uh, they're just too fun sometimes for some people. Uh, that's a little sarcasm, but yeah, I think you know what I mean. It's just, and, and there are things people don't like. I mean, I met someone this last week and he just, he just can't hardly stand when we start waving our hands. And, but but he, he's okay, you know, he, he, for that, for, for some 47 years he's put up with that because he loves the kids and loves the Lord. And I, I just think that's fantastic. I sometimes have wondered if church life should be more like camp but maybe it's not too practical. Uh, when I was at teen camp, this is so crazy and funny because, you know, we're kind of trying to do COVID man, you know, mitigation and whatever. <laughs> then we have kind of a crazy song singing Thursday morning and, and they sing the song, Back, Back, Train and Get Your Load. You know that one? You know, we're all going to heaven. And then, and then I think, please do not form a train. <laughs> and they do all around the inside of the lodge and back, back, you know, and it's just like, I can't take it. But okay, there went any COVID rules, but uh, 
I, I do like the spirit at camps, and it's a great place for youth to have opportunities to mentor and be mentored. It's wonderful. Our sermon series that Patrick has started us off with <clears throat> is called Rule Your Life. And it comes from the ancient concept of a rule of life. The rules are not so much laws, but practices that shape your life. Our metaphor has been this trellis, and I, re I really like that. A trellis is a frame upon which a vine can grow <clears throat> and take an intended direction. It's an important concept because without it, our practices can be very vague and inconsistent. I first learned this through the School of Hard Knocks, which is a hard way to learn things, but it does impress your memory. As a young minister, I thought that our fellowship had been too legalistic and too law-based, and without enough emphasis on Jesus and grace. Depending on the church, this was probably true. So I've learned, uh, I've tended to point people, not just tended, I've been intentional about pointing people to Jesus, assuming that that would be enough to shape their spiritual lives. That's mostly true. But in ministry, I discovered two things. First of all, as I continue to read the New Testament, the apostles taught that ethics and morals were teaching ethics and morals to churches who were becoming increasingly Gentile. And they were coming out of pagan roots without the benefit of the Hebrew scriptures. They did not have the moral grounding of their Jewish brothers and sisters. So the apostles emphasized the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the coronation, and the coming of Jesus Christ. And they also then taught morals and ethics. The letters are just often like that. You'll have God's salvation. And therefore, since you've been saved, behave in this way. <clears throat> some of the people, and secondly, I learned that some of the people who were coming to the Lord in my early years of ministry didn't seem to know much about or care much about morals or ethics. My observation has been that my parents' generation, and you can quibble about this, I don't mind, this is just my perception and a vast generalization. My parents' generation knew ethics and morals, and when they violated them, often did them in secret. And they might have felt guilty. My generation, that one that grew up during the 60s and 70s, uh, sexual revolution, knew ethics and morals, and when they violated them, committed them in the light and might or might not have felt guilty. Younger generations seem not to be aware of ethics and morals as much and when they violate them, do so in the light, don't feel any guilt or at least not very apparent guilt. This is, goes back in time, but in the late 1970s, Barbara and I just started ministry and so we were working with church but also trying to serve a college campus. During that time, two, we had met two of the prominent spiritual leaders on campus. They came to me one day to talk to me about uh, a situation and asked me what they should do. This seemed very simple to me. Uh, stop or get married. They were astonished. I was astonished that they were astonished. And uh, I, for the first time, 
I really realized that there were starkly different views of what it means to follow Jesus. The point is, we live in a pagan culture that does not know or uphold morality or ethics very well. Rather, morals and ethics tend to depend on the situation, and there is a sense that God doesn't care that much about traditional ethics or morals. So the people of God must first point to Jesus. Yes. A little louder. Amen? I right? Am I right about that? Okay. I want you to be with me here. Uh, as Savior, but also inform people about the way of Jesus in morals and ethics and love. Yes. So using the metaphor of a trellis, I want to consider a text that can be part of our rule of life. I'm going to start with a question. I usually don't ask people to raise your hands, but you can for, just for fun, because this is really non-intimidating question, okay? How many have heard of the ten words? One, you were in the sermon. You don't count. <laughs> and he's a preacher. What? Okay, ignore him. Any ten words? Okay, thank you, Steve. Steve was good enough to come. He, this is the second time he's heard this thing. <clears throat> How many have heard of the ten commandments? Good. That's exactly what happened, except for Steve at the first service. <laughs> we... Uh, uh, the, we are most familiar, and the text we're going to consider, uh, the Ten Commandments are in two places in scriptures, Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. Now, we are most familiar with the phrase Ten Commandments because that is the language of Deuteronomy 5, decrees and laws. But the word in Exodus is word, word, not laws and decrees. Interesting. For whatever reason, Ten Commandments is a more common phrase to indicate the laws and decrees given by God to Moses and the people of Israel. Both commandments and words are accurate descriptors of the instructions, but I think we hear them differently. They just sound differently. Command sounds like law and legalism. Words sounds like guidance, the nuance. I think it is a nuance that we ought not to miss. In other words, instructions given by God are not only commands, but words that give guidance to the way of life instead of death. In our metaphor, a trellis to life. So we're going to walk through Exodus 20 and uh, these 10 words, except you'll be happy to know, I'm not going to give 10 minutes on each word. You can do the math on that. So, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. Now, what is the first word? Now, some of you probably grew up learning these, perhaps. Well, among Protestants, many Protestants, it is verse 3, you shall have the first word or first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Catholics and Lutherans then also include in the first commandment, verse 4, in that you shall not make for yourself an image in, or idols in the form of anything. And then they have to adjust some others. In other words, the first word in the Christian, Christian tradition is a do not, which is interesting. This may be the way you learned them. However, 
in Judaism, the first commandment, the first word is verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first word in Judaism from God is a word of grace and salvation. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. They're not numbered in your Bible. In other words, before there are words and commands for the people of God, there is salvation. And the whole Bible follows that pattern. From Genesis to Revelation, there is first what God has done for people, and then some people respond to God in gratitude and service and devotion and obedience, and in general, that is called worship. It is worship. So, a second, well, uh, we must be continually reminded of this, otherwise we despair over not being able to keep God's word perfectly in order to be saved, or we imagine ourselves keeping them all and we become self-righteous. Neither are good places to end. What might be a second word? We'll just go down the list here. <clears throat> Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Sorry about my voice. <clears throat> I'm not used to yelling at people so much. <clears throat> you shall have no other gods before me. What might help us to be better disciples of Jesus? What if we regularly ask ourselves if a person or thing or event was becoming more important to us than God and God's people and God's people? And I'm not talking about beating ourselves up sort of way or making sure we're always feeling guilty about something, but just in an honest evaluation of our priorities measured by time and treasure. What are we most passionate about? And what do we seek as the means to peace and joy? What, what really gives my life meaning? A third word, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, we've tended to skirt that, and there are all kinds of reasons that I'm not going to go into and so forth. But, but I think to understand this, this word properly, it is not as a law shutting down all activity on Saturday, but a principle that could shape our lives. Here are some things to remember. The Sabbath was not intended as a restriction to punish people, or it was not meant to make people jump through all kinds of hoops, nor to force upon people a day of boredom. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I had a lot of anxieties about getting religious. Uh, I, I grew up in, my parents were good folks, but, but we weren't religious. I, I can only remember us praying at Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas, maybe Easter. You know. But uh, I do remember there were some people in where I grew up, neighborhood, who were extremely devout. And they practiced Sabbath on the Sunday. Well, that's a terrifying thing because you can't go fishing, you can't go bowling, and you can't go to any rodeos, which was the worst. I mean, uh, so I kind of wanted to follow God, but, you know, if, if that's where you end up, that, that caused a lot of conflict. Is it really worth it? Maybe. Uh, the Sabbath was meant to provide a day of rest so we don't kill ourselves. And those working under us, even the animals. I, I think it's so interesting God's concerned about the donkeys, isn't it? 
what's up with that? You know, that would be another sermon, or not a very good one probably, but... But God cares so much about his creation and people, even the animals, let's, let's let everybody have a day off. I like that. It is a gracious and sane word. By keeping a Sabbath, we are saying to the world, just as, as we're gathering here, we're saying something, even non-verbally, we're saying, this is the most important thing in our lives. It is Jesus Christ and his people. And Jesus has saved us, and we gather to praise him and encourage one another. Yes. It is the top priority for us. It's, it gives our lives meaning. By keeping a Sabbath, we are saying to the world, God cares about us enough to keep the world running while we pause. We are saying we are not in charge of running the world. And the world does not depend on our incessant activity to keep it moving. I think God's going to be fine. Sabbath is an action of trust in God. I know this is not easy. Uh, we, we haven't practiced a real disciplined, uh, specific time period over the years. Perhaps we should have been. It's not been easy for me. I didn't grow up in a family that practiced any kind of Sabbath. There was always one more thing to do. I remember, I think I was home from college one summer and, and uh, in a farming community, then this time, this season, summer is so busy. And so we'd put up a lot of hay, and the harvest was in, the wheat harvest, wheat had been cut. And it was right about this time of year. I was probably going to go back to college soon. And so we, we, we had finished everything. There was not one more thing to do. And so Dad and I came in, went to supper, and I thought, after supper, we'll watch TV. Though it's, you know, we only had one channel and probably nothing on, but at least not work. After supper, my dad went outside and started working on the machinery. And I went out and said, Dad, what are you doing? Let, come in. Let's relax. He said, i got to get this machinery ready for next summer. I mean, that's all you got time for all winter. Six, eight months yet. And he is out there, and he would not come in. And I just went into the house, and I thought, there's something wrong here. Barbara and I have one ministry we were in. We called it no margin on the pages. Have any of you used that phrase? No margin, or you know it? No margin. I mean, every line is filled up from left to right, and all there's writing in between lines. And we were in a church that uh, the people were hard workers, and it was like the, them for two. I often preached two times on Sunday morning, taught a Bible class in between. Sometimes there was a potluck. We had an elders meeting at 4 p.m. And then at four, uh, 6 p.m., Barbara and I hosted a uh, small group. And I might confess that by 8 o'clock, I was ready for everybody to go home. <laughs> I, I didn't want to, <laughs> I don't need to develop that. I, well, now I have to tell you, don't I? I just didn't want to hear anybody any more stuff. I, I was just done. I was just done. That's crazy. And this may seem odd for the preacher to say, but while I think Christians should have a high priority in participating in the family of God, maybe we shouldn't expect everyone to be at every event. Just a thought. Without a time to rest, it might be asked how well we can even follow the other words. 
Years ago, a preacher friend gave me a tape by another preacher. We do this all the time. He, he's very famous, and, uh, but he was talking about a struggle he had, and, and he, he had almost imploded. And he said, it caught me by surprise because I was practicing spiritual disciplines. I was praying, I was reading my Bible, and doing all kinds of spiritual things. So that was good. I was even physically exercising, so that was in good shape. But emotionally, I was exhausted. I think today I would say, buddy, you need to have a Sabbath. And he almost lost it, everything. So I commend that to you. <clears throat> a fourth word, you shall not give uh, false witness <coughs> testimony against your neighbor. The word is specifically directed toward what we call lying in court. But it also, well, you're a, you are a blessing. Thank you. Talk among yourselves for, <laughs> not about the sermon, unless it's good. I'll tell you what, that Edwards family is something else. I've decided that when I want to grow up, I want to be like them. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. That helped. <clears throat> it could also remind us, this word, of Jesus' words, to let your yes be yes or your no be no, and the importance of truth-telling. I was fortunate to have parents who were demanding when it came to telling the truth. I was told, see if some of you older ones, maybe everyone, I was told if you uh, tell the truth, the punishment will be less. Oh, isn't that great? It will be less than if you find out we have lied to us. Oh, you're good. So that is ingrained in me. Now, here's a part for the younger folks. It's a silly story, but... Uh, you're going to have to stretch a little bit to make the application, but I don't think it'll be too hard. It's about children and parents and children, parents who, who I got to be careful here. In theory, sometimes parents make no rules that make no sense. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> I'd love to know who said that. Okay, let's. Are we, have I lost my place here? Have I got the next picture? There you go. Now, I don't know how well you can see it, but this is Bruce Goodwin's first rodeo. And uh, the big thing is there's supposed to be an arrow that's this big, bigger than the hat. I just want you to see the hat. You can't tell the hat, but I can tell the story about the hat. Uh, my mother, I, I'm an only child, a uh, boy, and uh, my mother loved all things pretty. And I wish I would have had a sister. Because I got all the pretty. Now imagine you're in a world in which cowboys, young and old, generally don't do pretty. I'll let your, you think about that. But we, you, we don't do pretty. And so my mom picked out my clothes, and she's the one paying for them, so I have little leverage. Even whining in the aisle doesn't really work. So we went, I needed a straw hat for the summer to protect me from the sun. And so we go to the store, and there's a selection of whatever. She picks out this one. 
I think it even said diamond back on it. It was very special. I don't know because I think the, the this design around the top looks like a rattlesnake or something. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I hated this thing. And I haven't quite gotten over it. I, I, we're, well, I could go on and on, but I, I'm, we're downsizing and I found this picture and anger. <laughs> God bless my mother, I can tell she's passed, so I can tell this story now. But, uh, so I wore this hat in the rodeo and I don't think I have a smile on my face, but at any rate, where this is going is my, my dad, I think, sometimes made up some rules to see if I would obey. So I was to go to my friend's house for the weekend, who were cowboys, and I was to wear this hat when I went outside. It's humiliating. It's a, it's a stupid hat. I, I might as well have had a bonnet on my head. So at least this is the way I'm feeling about it. And so I, I can't stand it. The other boys have hats that are dirty and crumpled and sweat, and I got a pretty hat. So I didn't, I didn't wear the hat much that weekend. And I came home. My dad, I remember the, my dad sitting in his chair. He says, come over here. And I'm just, I, I think this can't be good. And he says, did you wear your hat while you were out in the sun? I've got two choices. And, and you have to think about these things very quickly. <laughs> One, could he have called my friend's mother and asked? Surely you wouldn't do that, surely. But it's possible. And then plus, there's just an ethical dilemma here. And so I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, okay. And that was the end of it. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a silly story, but I think we all have those stories, don't we? Don't we have all those kind of stories? And so I believe, I just have it in me, that you tell the truth, and you let the chips fall where they may. You just tell the truth. I'm not saying a person has to be mean to tell the truth or cruelly mean or anything. As a veterinarian uh, taking care of little dogs, as someone asked me if Smookums, their little ugly dog, is cute, I had to come up with solutions, answers. One was, he has character. Or, all dogs are cute. Or, I'm sure he's a blessing. <laughs> I think you know where I'm saying about that. Some of these questions are just awkward, and so, well, you figure out the application. I'm just saying, I don't, try, I don't think we ought to try to protect ourselves too intently about, from consequences. We just tell the truth. There are some ways that a commitment to telling the truth saves us. One is that people will trust us and know they are going to get a straight answer from us even if they don't like the answer. This last week somebody asked me about a conflict situation at church and I'd been giving some advice and they said, did you give the leadership some advice? And I knew they knew what I had said. And I just said, yes. Yes, I did. 
Secondly, if we know we're going to tell the truth, no matter what, it will shape our behavior. Because we know that if we're asked about our actions, we will tell the truth. It also helps us to keep our, our life, thought life, pure, knowing we will tell the truth if asked about our thinking and daydreaming. And you can think about that. Truth-telling has served me well. I have always had a high moral and ethical compass. Now, I'm not trying to say that uh, about being good, though I've not always lived up to it perfectly. I would attribute it to my personality as an only child and perfectionism, which is not healthy. My mother, who was constantly training me with ethical and moral stories. There was, she was a teacher, a grade school teacher, and there was always a moral to the story. We have stories she would tell that make no sense, but there was always a moral to it. And you think, this makes no sense, but that's how I grew up. When I was in the third grade, our home burned down. Eventually, we were living in this very tiny, tiny trailer house while a new house was being built. Neighbors had given us pots and pans and furniture to replace the burnt ones. Among the gifts was a decorative dish to hang on the wall. On it were the, guess what, Ten Commandments. At this stage of life, uh, we kept the dish in a cabinet, and I had a dread. We, we weren't a religious folks, and most of my friends were certainly not religious. And I had a certain dread of looking at it, because it seemed too religious. And I didn't want anyone to think that I was overly religious. Still, I felt this compulsion to take the dish out when no one was looking, and I felt that because there was an upcoming VBS that mom had signed me up for, I should memorize them lest I be called upon to recite them and not know them and be embarrassed. Doesn't that tell you something about me, I guess, right? Can you imagine anybody anywhere that the teachers at the VBS would line up the children? Oh, children, oh. Oh, we want you to recite the Ten Commandments, and if you can't recite the Ten Commandments, you're a bad child. No one would do that, but that's my, you know, crazy imagination. So I, I don't want to be embarrassed. That's the worst thing in the world for me. So I memorized the ten words before my fourth grade year of school. I think they shaped me. Even though I did not realize they were doing more for me than avoiding potential embarrassments. I developed a rule of life. And it served me well. The words have been a blessing and not a burden. In John's words, his commandments are not burdensome. So I want us to remember the purpose of God's words. From Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, and it also continues, but we're just going to capture a small portion. These are the commands the decrees and the laws. The Lord Yahweh, your God, directed me to teach you to mow observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Why? So that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly, greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, 
just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And so I commend these ten words to you, both children and adults, not as a means of salvation, but a trellis, a memory tool to shape your heart. And then one last thing. If you've not kept all these commandments, God has provided a means of forgiveness and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his coronation as king, and his coming. And our part in accepting his gift is to allow ourselves to be cut to the heart and acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, to turn our lives over to him, to ask God for a clean conscience by accepting forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit when we are immersed with Jesus in the waters of baptism. And then following Jesus, the rest of our lives. So the invitation is, if you want to talk to this, this, or anything, uh, there are lots of people in this church. Uh, ministers, elders, their wives, they, they love to talk about the Lord. They like to talk to people about their spiritual life. So get in touch with one of these folks. We're eager to help you know God through Jesus. And if the church agreed, they said, 